While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in, in saying these things, you are insulting us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, if you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, if you take away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. Now we noted last week that this text marks a massive escalation of the tension between Jesus and his opponents. Up until this point, there have been more sort of parrying. And here, the full frontal assault begins. And starting in chapter 12, Jesus will publicly teach his disciples against the Pharisees. Look at 12.1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, implying he taught this elsewhere, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We also noted last week that nobody gets it as strongly and as bad as the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus has things to say about false religion. Jesus has things to say about pagans. Jesus has things to say about sin. Nowhere does he speak as forcefully, as consistently against as he does these people. This is one of the reasons why I think it's worth slowing down and paying attention because as I suggested again last week, I think this error in particular, of Phariseeism and legalism, is the one we are most likely to stumble into. There are many errors out there. There are many ways to, to fall off a table, as a friend of mine says. And yet this one in particular is, I think, the one we need to be paying attention of. And we're not likely to drift off into liberalism. But if we're not careful, 
we can drift into this. We looked last week at the beginnings of Phariseeism and how understandable it was, their desire to call their nation back to fidelity to God. Their desire for the people to be faithful, and in many respects, they were successful. The people know their Bibles. Idolatry, at least overt outward idolatry, is gone in Israel. And yet these people who in so many ways were right on so many things get the single strongest rebuke. And so last week, Jesus does something astonishing. He's a guest at a dinner party, and all his host does is is become surprised. He marvels that Jesus doesn't first wash his hands ceremonially before eating. We notice that the law commands no such washing. But the scribes and the Pharisees had taught it. It was their tradition. And Jesus pronounces judgment on his host. This is a bold thing to do as a guest at a dinner party. And he just, he just tears into his host, calls him a fool. And he exposes what it is that he is offended by, what God is offended by in the Pharisees. They are hypocrites. They are legalists. They are proud. And rather than helping others, they are insidious. They actually contaminate and defile others. Now, our text this morning picks up in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He picked up on it. Now, Jesus' first um, salvo was against the Pharisees, but we know the Pharisees and the, the scribes and lawyers walk in tandem together. They, they first show up in Luke's narrative together back in chapter 517 when Jesus heals the paralytic. Luke 5.17, in those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. That's when Luke introduces them, and they stumble as Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins over the paralytic. Then they show up again in verse 30, again stumbling over this same issue. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Get this, their big concern is contamination. You don't eat and drink with sinners, it'll spread to you. And and Jesus identifies that they don't see themselves as sinners. They see themselves as righteous. They're not seeing themselves as the sick, but as the healthy. They show up again in chapter 6, verse 7, as the scribes and Pharisees begin to watch him to see whether he'd heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. It's, It's escalating. And then Jesus himself reveals in Luke chapter 9 that it was the lawyers themselves, the scribes, who will be putting him to death. The scribes and the lawyers are interchangeable terms in Luke's gospel. So in in chapter 9, 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed on the third day and be raised. So readers of Luke's gospel already know this lawyer and the people like him are the very ones who ultimately put Jesus to death. And he stands up and potentially defending his host and also being insulted at what Jesus says, he he issues a complaint. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He recognized that Jesus' rebuke indicted him and the other lawyers. So how does that work? The lawyers were the legal experts who interpreted the law. And and one of the things they would do is begin to work through what's called casuistry, case law, specifics. So God's law will say something like, don't work on the Sabbath. And the lawyers would work through all the variations of what might or might not constitute work. 
and take a broad principle and give specifics. And they would give these verdicts. The Pharisees largely were the ones sort of modeling and enforcing this, but the scribes and the lawyers, as best as we can tell, are the ones who specialized, focused on interpretation. In fact, part of Jesus' rebuke, we won't look at this week, is that they take the keys of knowledge. They, they've taken for themselves interpretive priority. They will tell you what the Bible means. And so he recognizes that as this Pharisee is applying their interpretation that you need to wash your hands before a meal and is astonished as Jesus rebukes that Pharisee, the the indictment travels backwards to those who give such rules and verdicts, the lawyers. He recognizes that Jesus rebuke indicted him. And here something tragic happens. And again, as we think through this, we read this passage wrong if we think it's about those nasty, awful legalists out there. In fact, the great irony is if we do that, we actually will generally become legalists. Rather, we need to recognize our propensity for these very things. Our propensity to fall into these traps. We need to watch for them, be aware of them, and guard ourselves from them because I don't want to receive Jesus' rebuke like this, and I don't think you do either. So we need to read this as exposing the heart, exposing the missteps. How does, how does one go from a start It seems so good, the desire to study God's word, interpret God's word, help people understand God's word to these types of condemnations. And we'll do well to listen as Jesus exposes the heart. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is this. This is tragic. The lawyer here has taken Jesus' call to repentance and understood it as an insult. That's what he says. In saying these things, you insult us also. One of the first tip-offs that you're dealing with legalist is their inability to be corrected and rebuked. It's tragic. Here is God in the flesh, pronouncing a rebuke, but also inviting repentance. We saw that last week as he tells the Pharisee to clean the inside of the cup and behold, everything is clean for you. He's he's given him a, a, a response to take, something he can do to avoid this fate. What Jesus has done is gracious, it's loving, as harsh and strong as it is, he's exposed the Pharisee's sinfulness, but he's also called him to repentance. Here's God pleading with man to repent, and this lawyer, all he sees in it is an insult. He doesn't see a call to response. He just sees a rude dinner guest. And the scriptures warn us against this, and it's so easy for us when someone corrects us to bristle, to not view it as a call to repentance, but as some affront Listen to Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. I'd suggest that if we want to avoid this trap, the first thing to consider is how open are we to others correcting us, others rebuking us. Do we listen? Do we consider what they're saying? Immediately the defenses raise up. The clause... And the fangs come out. This lawyer saw nothing in Jesus' rebuke except an insult. Proverbs warn of this. Proverbs 9, 7 through 8. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Get that contrast? God in the flesh rebukes and calls them to repentance. This guy's just insulted. Insulted. 
Proverbs 27, five through six, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. The scriptures tell us that a lot of where our heart's at can be seen in how we respond to correction. And we see this man's response. How dare you insult us? How dare you insult us? You're insulting us also, teacher. So even though it appears courteous, he calls him teacher, he's pushing back, make no mistake. And he sees nothing in Jesus' rebuke except for an insult, which then leads to Jesus' condemnation of the lawyers. It comes in the form of three more woes as he first pronounces a woe on point A, woe to legalists who burden others. Woe to legalists who burden others. The other two woes are woe to hypocritical rebels and woe to false teachers and shepherds, and we'll look at that next week. But I just want to spend our time this morning looking at this first woe and unpacking it. Woe to legalists who burden others. Now, the word burden in the ESV occurs two times. In Greek, it's three times. Literally, woe to you for you burden people with heavy burdens, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens. And with that type of emphasis we pick up here, they're, they're putting a weight on people. And we'll see they're legalists who burden others. And that's generally the, uh, the other trait we see about legalism. Generally, legalism is expressed not in the convictions I hold, but on the things that I insist to hold other people to. And so these lawyers aren't just interpreting the law for themselves, but they're placing these burdens upon other people. And I think they err in three ways, as Jesus points out. First, one, they add to God's law. They add to God's law. As they interpret it, they, they add things to it. Back in Luke chapter 5, they grumbled that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Now, presumably the reason they're grumbling is this broke some unwritten or even written in the Talmud or some of their writings rule that they had. They focus on cleansing and being clean and, and, and remaining undefiled. And we know from examining the extant literature and their, and their writings, they had all sorts of rules. They, they had determined exactly how far you could walk on a Sabbath without working. In fact, John's gospel references that Jesus stayed a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem. Who do you think came up with just exactly how far can you walk on a Sabbath before you Break the Sabbath? Well, the scribes knew. They had an answer. And, and again, we want to be sympathetic with how you get there. I mean, understand, breaking the Sabbath comes with a death penalty, right, in Israel. Breaking the Sabbath comes with a death penalty. In fact, immediately after God instituted the, the Ten Commandments with the Sabbath, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. They stoned him to death. You can read about it in Exodus 20 and 21. And so you get the sympathy. This is this big of a deal and since God didn't, in the Ten Commandments, specify exactly what constituted work, then wouldn't it be a good idea, wouldn't it be a helpful thing if the teachers set up a guardrail a fair ways away from that, lest we break the Sabbath and bring the death? You get the logic. You're dealing with something serious here. And yet they add. I think that's the understanding of the heavy burdens hard to bear. They go beyond what is written. They, they, they also have other rules. Um, when, remember when Jesus heals the, the man with the mat and the man puts the mat on his shoulder? He's breaking the Sabbath. He's working. Why? 
Now again, extant literature tells us that the, what they understood was a burden that was light enough that you could carry it underarm wasn't so heavy that it was work. But if you had to put it on your shoulder, if that's how heavy it was, well, that constitutes work. But again, when you're dealing with something with a death penalty, I want you to be a little sympathetic with why they thought it was a good idea to make this casuistry, make these rules. And yet Jesus tells them that in doing so, they're not actually helping the people. And that's their supposed intended goal, to guard the people, put up these guardrails. Rather, they're burdening and, and laying these heavy burdens upon them that are hard to bear. And he says, and you yourselves do not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, there's two ways to understand this. Jesus is either saying that they won't help others. They sit back and, and, and are aloof and, and un uncaring, or that they themselves don't undertake the burdens themselves. I, I kind of think both are intended, and certainly from the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels, we can see they do do both. So point two, not only do they add to God's law, but they have written into their interpretations exemptions for themselves. They've made exemptions for themselves. Turn to Luke chapter 16. I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 16. Starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way in. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, it may seem odd. Why does he bring this up? Notice it's an unbroken quotation. Well, as best as we can understand, the Pharisees had a very, very long list of reasons and offenses that you could divorce your wife for. What it appears is they'd come up with a sanctified way of almost wife-swapping. As long as you issue a legitimate divorce for some reason they found legitimate, you could marry a woman and then divorce her. In fact, this takes place in, in Muslim countries today. If you talk, talk to people who've been over there where um, no, no observant Muslim would, would ever sleep with a prostitute, but you can marry one for the weekend and then have an iman and all the marriage. See, it's all holy. It's all above boards. No sin here. Well, Pharisees apparently were doing something like that. We know they had other tricks up their sleeve as well. In Mark 7, 9 through 11, um, he says this, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your mother and f your father and mother, and whoever reviles mother and father must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained is Corban, that is given by God. What, what they were doing was this. Um, there was an expectation that if your parents were, were in need of funds, if they were unable to work, that they would come and live with their children. Paul tells Timothy, this is a good thing. Well, the Pharisees had come up with a very sanctified way of getting around this. It works something like this. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. I've, uh, I've devoted my house to ministry. I've given it to the Lord. So it's not mine to do with what I want. I'd love to take you in, but I can't. It's a ministry house. See how that works? So they'd written in exemptions. Or one, one other example. In, in Matthew 23, 18. Matthew 23, 18. 
Jesus said to them, no, sorry, Matthew 23, 18, sorry. And you say, he's talking to the Pharisees, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. I mean, you know, children play these games, right? They make a promise. Oops, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Why do you make rules like this? You make rules like this so you can deceive people, so you can make oaths and then say, well, actually, I'm not really bound to my oath because I only swore by the altar. Now, if I had sworn by the, the sacrifice on the altar, then you'd have me. And so they would write in exemptions for themselves, and Jesus would light them up repeatedly for this. Light them up repeatedly for this. Third, though, they refused to help others. And this is probably the most, the most damning statement about them. These people who set themselves up as shepherds for the flock, these people who, who stated motives was to protect, preserve, to guard Israel, had no compassion for the people, despised the people, we see in some passages. In Luke 20, 46-47, Jesus says this, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. And if you read through your Bible, you know that the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner come up again and again and again in the law and in the prophets as those to whom God has a special place in his heart for, and he calls his people to show a special kindness to. Again and again and again. Remember, you were sojourners in Egypt. Be kind to the sojourner. In fact, James goes so far as to say, true and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What do these shepherds of Israel do? Do they care for the widows? They devour them and their goods and monies. That's not, that's not helpful. In John seven forty nine, we we see their true estimation of the people. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They say, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That's part of the reason why you had to wash your hands because the people were dirty. The people were contaminated. The people were defiled. That was how they viewed the other people. They add to God's law. They've made exemptions for themselves and they refuse to help others. That's, that's the basis of this first condemnation. And here's the point where I want to pause and ask you to turn to Matthew 28, what is commonly known as the Great Commission. Because I, I think it's important for us to, to examine this. If this is the case, and if these lawyers get this type of rebuke, this strongly, how then do we obey the Great Commission? which may seem like an odd question, but I want you to notice what is tied up in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is one command. It's not four commands. One command in Greek, one verb, three participles explaining how that one command is to be undertaken. Jesus said in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. There's your command. Discipleize the nations. How do you do that? You do it going baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which I think is the evangelistic missions frontier um, wing of the Great Commission. You've, you've got to preach the gospel. You've got to make converts. You've got to baptize those converts. But notice verse 20. What is also tied up in the Great Commission? 
what is tied up in making disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe or to keep all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the Great Commission involves, if we're faithful to it, not just the proclamation of the Gospels, or Christ has not been named. It does involve that. But it involves teaching and calling on those converts to observe not some, not a lot, but everything that Christ commands. We are not being faithful to the Great Commission if we are not calling men and women to obey Christ's commands, which then puts us in danger of this error. Because, because I think in many cases, we're so afraid of being legalists that we sort of jump to the other end, that we overextend the pendulum, then we just won't deal with commandments or laws at all. We just won't deal with them. And then we won't be legalists. Right, but then we're not being faithful either. There's got to be a way that we've got to think through that how do we do this faithfully, fulfill the Great Commission, which necessarily involves calling on men and women to, to obey Christ's commands, and yet not be guilty as these lawyers. And I just want to think through um, five, five points because again, the term legalism gets pulled out often. You remember back in the days of the uh, of McCarthyism, where the danger was being a um, a communist, right? And you sort of pull it out. Now it's being legalism. And any time we sniff something that seems stringent, firm, and unbending, anything that's a little more conservative than our interpretation, so quickly we pull out the term of legalism. We don't want to be legalistic. That sounds legalistic. You're a legalist, and maybe we are. But the, the answer isn't, well, then we don't want to get these condemnations, so we just won't call on anyone to do anything. How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we authentically be faithful to the Great Commission and not do this? Four things. First and most obviously, I think, is this. Do not go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond what is written. Paul says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up in favor one against another. In that case, they've got, they've got preferences to preaching styles. Apollos was a powerful orator in their Greek um, or, oration skills. He's, he, he, he spoke well. Paul admits he stutters. He's not as good of a speaker. And yet Paul says if they're making rules about how one has to teach, they're going beyond what is written, and it's leading them to have factions. We're not to go beyond what is written. And again, it's tempting to go beyond what is written. It's so tempting to protect people. Um, it used to be that Christians were known, let's see if I can get the rhyme correctly, they don't, what is it? I don't dance, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? Yet I'm not aware of any Scripture that would overtly forbid any of those three practices. So easy to, to set up a guardrail to, to make a rule and a commandment. Turn, turn to Colossians chapter 2. In the ABF last week, we looked at this. And Paul, in the New Testament, recognizes the temptation. He recognizes the appeal of rulemaking, going beyond what's written. And man, the motives sound so good. We're protecting people. We're trying to help them be safe. And in Colossians chapter 2, he says this. Verse 20, chapter 2 in Colossians. If with Christ you have died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world? 
Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. Asceticism is a, is a Greek philosophy of severe and harsh treatment to the body. The, the, the logic was if you... If you um, don't ever do things you enjoy. If all the food you eat is unpleasant, if you're harsh to your body, somehow that'll rein in the flesh. This, this indeed has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, so going beyond what's written, making rules and forcing others to abide by them has an appearance of wisdom, and is of no value. No value whatsoever. And I want to make one other caveat here as well. This is dealing with us and other believers. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that we have no business judging those outside of the church. God, God deals with them. So, so even as a preparatory first point, if we're, going to, if we're going to call people to obey Christ, we're calling Christians to obey Christ, or as Paul says, those who name the name Christian, people who call themselves Christians, we hold them to the standard. But the first thing we got to make sure is that we're not going beyond what's written, which means we then have the job of pointing to chapter and verse. If you're going to correct somebody, if you're going to call somebody to do something, you need to be capable to show them where in Scripture it is commanded, where it is said, where Christ demands this of us. Now, if you can do that, you're, you're being faithful. The first part of Christ's command in the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And if we find ourselves not being able to support what we're saying from Scripture, we move on to point two here, we need to then respect the conscience of others. We need to respect the conscience of others. Turn to Romans 14, please. Now, there is some quarreling in the church at Rome. There were believers who had come out of paganism and had associated meat that had been sacrificed to idols in the pagan worship of the Greek gods well, that meat would eventually get sold in the marketplace. And they associated this tainted, demonic meat, however they might view it. And yet Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 1. As to the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Notice Paul doesn't say this is an undecided issue. Here and elsewhere, he makes it clear, look, I can eat a cheeseburger that's been sacrificed to Zeus. That's okay. I can even have a meal, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, in an idol's temple. It's nothing to me. Yet, even though he recognizes somebody's right and wrong, one of these parties is weak. The weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So when we're dealing with issues of conscience... Paul actually says, keep, keep your opinions to yourself. What's the rule? Verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while each person esteems every day alike. Now, what we're talking about is Sabbath keeping, right? So some people, for the sake of conscience, decide to set aside a whole entire day. They're not going to do anything or devote it to rest and worship the Lord. Someone else works the job on, on Saturday or Sunday. What do we do? Verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's, that's what we should do. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Verse 22, 
Only most explicitly, the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. The lawyers were taking these things that weren't explicitly commanded and imposing them on other people, placing burdens on other people. And when it comes to matters of conscience, you can honor God by observing a day. You can honor God by not observing a day. You can honor God by abstaining from certain things. You can honor God by not abstaining from certain things. You just need to be fully convinced in your own mind. The faith you have, though, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the first standard, and this is, you can apply this to yourself, you can apply this to someone else who might be calling you to do something, is what I'm trying to call someone to or is what someone is calling me to clearly taught in the scriptures, commanded in the scriptures. Yes, okay, we're off to a good start. If it's not... It's an issue of the conscience. And Paul tells us clearly, don't impose your conscience on other people. Don't impose your conscience on other people. Respect the consciences of others. Third, hold yourself to the same standard. The Pharisees and the lawyers wrote in all these exemptions for themselves. We need to hold ourselves to the same standard. Whereas Jesus says in the Sermon on the Plain, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own. That type of hypocrisy where you're calling on people to do something that you yourself are unwilling to do. Now, the, the solution is not, I'll do it and I won't tell them not to do it. The solution is stop disobeying God. Get, get the log out of your own eye and then go talk to your brother. Paul in Romans chapter 2 gives a scathing rebuke to those who, who do not obey this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is one of the reasons why the qualifications for leadership in Christ's church have so much to do with them the men carrying these things out. It's not enough to teach soundly. You have to model sound doctrine so that Hebrews 13, 7 can be obeyed, which calls on us to remember our leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We need to avoid the danger of holding others to a standard that we ourselves don't keep or maybe we've written exceptions for ourselves into. Next, we need to be willing to help bear one another's burdens. I think this is one of the things that should distinguish us from the lawyers and the Pharisees. They, they hold the others in contempt. We need to be willing to help others. And not just for the sins we struggle with. I mean, I know that we can be, we're great at helping others in some sins. There are some messy issues. Drug addiction, things like that, that people need help with. And it's challenging and it's difficult. Yet in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now that tied up in that assumes correction, teaching. Here's what God says. Here's what you're doing. You're not this. But you're restoring them. You're not just hitting them. You're restoring, you're mending. Then he goes on to say this. Keep watch of yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. Another sign of a lawyer or legalist is a glee 
in exposing sin in others, but an unwillingness to help. A good follow-up. Okay, you've, God has shown you this weakness in somebody else. What are you willing to do to help them with that? If they listen to you and you go talk to them, are you prepared to walk with them? Or do you just simply want to, you messed up, you broke the rules, just want to let you know. That's, that's a lawyer, that's a legalist. A Christian will go and help restore. Bear one another's burdens. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Help the weak. So as a body, we do need to be correcting ourselves. As a body, we do need to be speaking the truth and love to ourselves. We do when the Lord shows us sin in someone else after examining ourselves, making sure we don't have a log in our eye, making sure it's clearly taught in the Bible, not a conscience issue. We do need to go talk to them, but we're talking to them and helping to restore them. And if you're, if you're coming to somebody with what the Scripture says and it's clear you're willing to help them, I think they're going to pick up a different attitude than simply coming and saying, you broke the rules and that's bad. And finally, and I think most importantly, how do we call on people to keep Christ's commandments? We need to walk in the Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit. There's something Jesus says in Matthew 11 that is puzzling at first glance. If you're aware of all the things Christ commands, there's some challenging and difficult things, at least to my eyes. And I've been walking with people in difficult situations where what God is clearly calling them to in Scripture is difficult. Persevering in a difficult marriage. Forgiving someone who's deeply hurt you. Submitting to a boss who is unjust over years. I mean, hard things. And yet Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, well-known verses, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I want to see yoke. It's a big, heavy piece of wood you put over the neck of a beast. Jesus says, I have a yoke. Make no mistake, I got a yoke. I'm going to constrain and direct you. You're going to do work. You, you pull a plow with a yoke. But he says, my yoke is light. My burden is easy. It seems like I got a light yoke. Easy burden. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now how do you how do you how do you deal with the light yoke, an easy burden, when you're talking to someone who's been persevering for five or six years in a difficult place and just encouraging them to persevere on? And they want to quit. They want to throw their hands. I'm done with this marriage. I'm done with dealing with this person. I'm done with trying to forgive the what do you what do you do? Hopefully, you don't just call them in their flesh to just muscle up some more grit and do it. Hopefully, you call on them to utilize the Spirit's strength. This is one of the the most important things in the New Covenant and how I think we can avoid legalism as well. Turn turn to Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. There's a great contrast in Romans chapter 8 between Romans 8 and Romans 7. I don't have time to, to, to unpack it fully, but you see a great contrast in the effectiveness of someone to fight sin and obey God. At the end of chapter 7, you see a picture of impotence and inability. In chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not want 
the good I want, but I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want, I keep on doing. Verse 21, I find this law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I, I want to obey God. I want to do what's right. I have no ability, no power, no strength. Well, the solution for that comes in chapter 8. And the solution is the spirit that God gives us. 8.1, now there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then he goes on, look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Notice it's God's Spirit there. Anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus, will raise you from, raise your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now get this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do I, how do I resist sin? How do, I, how do I obey Christ? Through the Spirit. Which is why in Ephesians and elsewhere, Paul tells us to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means... In prayer, relying on God. He's coming to God saying, I'm weak. This is difficult. I want to do what is right, but I know I don't have the power in me to do it. God, would you keep your promise with your spirit? Would you enable me to obey? Would you, would you not let me be tempted beyond what I'm able? Would you give me a way out? It means relying on the body, the, the, the resources that Christ has given you as we bear one another's burdens and not struggling on alone by yourself, but utilizing the church. And it means not simply working hard, but working hard, trusting that God is working. There's a great, almost, contradiction. It's just more of a mystery, and a mystery that we'll dive into some when we look at God's sovereignty in a few weeks. But listen to Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You need to get to work. There's work to be done. Greek word, energo, energy. Get to work. Why? For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we're going to learn that salvation and God's choice is, is his act alone before the foundation of the world. We'll see that in a few weeks. But sanctification, our growing into the image of Christ, there's a synergy. I work as God works. I get to work and I pursue Christ and I pursue obedience. I do what the Puritans would call holy sweat. But I do it, not on my own, but knowing that the Spirit and God is working in me both to desire and to do. So that we can echo with Paul, it's not I that live, but Christ in me. So in summary, how do we, how do we call people to obedience and not be guilty of what this lawyer and the men like him are guilty of? How do we know? Because I, if you're like me, when you get called a legalist, and if you call people to faithfulness to God's word, I guarantee you it'll come out. 
Anytime someone feels like you're actually pushing, no, you can't do that. I know you want to do that. I know everything you're trying to do. You cannot do that and remain faithful to Christ. They will pull out. It's, it's happened to me. It's happened to the elders on a number of occasions. That's legalism. You're being legalistic. So how do you, how do you know? Maybe they're right. Maybe you are. How do you know? Here's, here's the evaluation. It, it, is the standard we're calling people to a standard that's clearly taught in Scripture? Can you point to where it's clearly taught in Scripture? Or is it an issue of conscience? Are you willing and striving to be held to that same standard? Are you calling someone to do something you're not willing to do either? Are you willing to help this person bear the burden? Will you also follow up with, I, I know you want to do this, but you can't, and I want to help. What can I do to help making obeying Christ easier? What can I do to make it more beautiful? What can I do to make it a lighter burden? And are we calling on them simply to, to grit their teeth, suck it up, and obey? Or are we calling them to call on God and His Spirit and His Word and His promises and His people and to walk in the Spirit? That makes all the difference between a legalist and someone faithfully pursuing the Great Commission. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank You for Your Word. And I just pray that You would guard us. Guard us from this danger. Guard us from the equally um, terrible danger of simply ignoring your rules and commandments. Help us to walk that razor's edge line being faithful to ourselves and calling each other to faithfulness to Christ, but not as legalists, but as your body, loving each other, bearing one another's burdens. Lord God, help us to to love each other this way, to, to, to build each other up in Christ, to help spur one another along in faithfulness to Christ until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.